Today I'd like to speak about God's love and blessing and wrath. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God after being tempted by Lucifer, the first thing they did was to hide from God in the garden and they covered themselves with fig leaves. That was the beginning of a mistaken mindset of hiding from a God whom they thought was angry and was now going to punish them for doing wrong. The fig leaves were a useless way of covering up their shame and guilt for doing wrong. That was not God's way of thinking, and he needed to change that mistaken mindset. God told Adam to come out into the open and talk to him. He was going to cover Adam with the skin of an animal, a lamb, a ram, a sheep or goat. I like to think it was a lamb to replace the useless fig leaves. So God shed blood and covered Adam. This is a prophetic picture for us of God providing Jesus as a blood sacrifice for the sins of humanity. This blood sacrifice covers the shame and guilt we all experience as sinful human beings. And the fig leaves represent our futile attempts to cover our shame of exposure by covering up for ourselves, instead of letting God's mercy cover our shame. Without a mindset of faith and trusting God for this, we will always live at a distance from God and hide like Adam because of shame and guilt, instead of coming close to him through his loving, mercy and forgiveness. This was the beginning of a lesson from God to us that he does not want us to hide from whom we think is an angry God that wants to punish us. He wants us to know that we do not have to hide who we really are with our weak and frail humanity, but to let him redeem us with his sacrificial love, the sacrificial lifeblood that he shed for us then and always. God used another prophetic picture of sacrificial lifeblood for us when he told Abraham to offer his only son Isaac on an altar. God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of countless children and in him all the families in the earth would be blessed. Abraham had to wait 25 years for the promise of a son and that promise was fulfilled and then he was told to offer him as a sacrifice. It is believed that Isaac was a teenager at the time. At the time of the sacrifice, Abraham was about to plunge the knife into Isaac when God, at the last moment, stopped him and provided a ram, maybe a lamb, for a sacrifice. But this time, he added the dimension of faith, where Abraham had to trust God to the utmost limit that he would provide the sacrifice and that Abraham would get the promised blessing. It speaks about it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, where it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, was in the act of offering up his only son. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, in a manner of speaking, he did receive him back. This was a different lesson for us. This is the lesson of faith in the promise of God through Jesus to bring to pass the promise of his resurrection life to us and in us when we take up our cross and trust in him 
by surrendering our will to his will. Without a mindset of faith and trust in God for this, we will always live at a distance from God instead of coming close to him in hope and expectation of his goodness to us. In the first 300 years after Jesus, the early church fathers like Athanasius and Irenaeus spoke powerfully about this redeeming and life-giving work of God through Jesus, which restores a close heart-to-heart and trusting fellowship between us and the Father. Then soon after that, something happened. Augustine, who was in fact a devoted heart-to-heart disciple of Jesus, began to use Greek philosophical language to describe God in terms of his essence. And then came further well-meaning descriptions of God's exalted attributes like omnipotence and omniscience, which mean all-powerful and all-knowing. And it is inspiring to realise these awesome qualities of God. However, if these attributes are all we are told about God, then we could perceive him as a distant and judgmental and non-relational God instead of an intimate and loving and forgiving God. From that time in history, just after the, or into the middle of the 4th century, the Roman Catholic and Judaistic legal mindset and the Greek philosophical style of thinking inadvertently allowed there to develop from all of that a tendency for many people to see God as an all-powerful God that was waiting to punish us if we disobeyed his set of rules. When this kind of thinking is taken to its extreme, it gets lived out as legalistic Christianity. And this extreme has influenced Christianity throughout the centuries. It oppresses God's people through a misuse of authority and power. The other extreme that we see in church is that God is an easygoing person who wants to gratify his needy children with whatever personal comfort and spiritual accessories that would help them feel that life on this earth was more bearable until we can escape and have a nice mansion in heaven. Now, they're extremes. In between these two extremes of legalism, and self-gratification sits the weighty reality of God's wrath. God's wrath is actually a profound expression of God's protective love towards his children. It is his intense indignation against sin and its harmful, destructive effect upon humanity. Like a mother bear who wants to protect her cub. Somebody comes for that cub Well, yeah, she looks really angry. That is wrath. I am protecting my child. Don't touch, don't harm her, or I'll harm you. Let's have a look at the beginning of God's wrath. Well, let's have a look at Satan, who started all of this. Because Satan is the classic example of the extremes of both of those two bad postures of legalism and sinful self-serving gratification, because neither of those really has grace in it. Lucifer 
abused his place of authority as a covering angel. In Ezekiel 28, verse 14, it says, Lucifer, you were the cherub, the anointed angel that covered. He was supposed to be protective. But he abused that place of protecting God's creation, God's children. And he brought temptation into humanity's appetite to gratify itself by offering Adam and Eve a taste of independent, self-serving autonomy, tempted their pride, deceived them, and it caused them to despise God's goodness towards them. In doing this, he brought deathly oppression upon all of humanity. So he was both legalistic, using his power to oppress, and he was tempting through self-serving gratification. He had both of them within him. That's what drove him. Now, what indignation would this cause God's heart? To see such deadly, sinister deception causing so much harm and destruction to his sons and daughters. The wrath of God plays out in the awful consequences of harmful and destructive sin, the missing the mark of oneness with God that we are all invited into. That's where the grace of God comes in. But when sin rules, all starting with deception, then rebellion and pride, everything gets turned into destruction. Can you imagine, from God's point of view though, giving us the gift of life and watching it turn against him and so leaving him to let it play out? He's watching people with free will turning against him, having been given the gift of life and watch the consequences playing out in repulsive and offensive and destructive and harmful behaviour of people towards one another and towards themselves. That's what brings about the wrath of God. He wants to protect us from that kind of destruction. In Romans 1 verse 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed, the word in the Greek there is apocalypto, that is the uncovering where we get the word apocalypse from, when everything gets brought out into the open. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there is a truth to be known, and when it's known and suppressed, then that brings the wrath of God, his protective love because he does not want his children to be harmed because of the effects. Notice there that the scripture says the wrath of God is revealed. It is being revealed. It is present tense. And God's wrath is being revealed or put on display around us in the world today in the harmful and destructive personal, political and ideological conflicts that are shredding people's souls and causing such grief and loss and misery and pain. History repeats itself over and over, and we find ourselves in this day and age in a suffering world separated for the most part in mind and heart from God, but he still remains faithful. 
Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And he says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You're saved from that wrath because you are not being turned over into the consequences of harmful and destructive behaviour called sin. You set it off and the ripple effect happens and hurt and pain and guilt and shame start to multiply. Wrath only came into existence because of sin. It wasn't in heaven. It wasn't there before God created the angels and, and us and the universe. And sin is going on all the time. So so is God's wrath. It's, it's being unfolded. But Paul shows us the way of freedom. He's just said, we, we're saved from the wrath of God through him being justified by his blood that we saw, that life-giving blood sacrifice that God did for Adam. We saw Abraham and the promises coming to pass because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus. And Paul realised he had a problem. But he shows us a way of freedom, a way of living with sin, because we've got sin in us, we can all be tempted, living with sin but above sin. He said this, in Romans chapter 7, verse 20. He said, It seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I find that evil is present within me. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to, it's plain where the trouble is. Sin still has me in its evil grasp. Who will ever get me out of this death trap? Paul is here describing the law of sin and death which is what we all live under. And this law made him feel stuck in a pattern of wanting to do the right thing, but ending up doing the wrong thing, and then feeling guilty and cut off from God and his peace. His mind was full of all the mistakes and failures, and this made him dread the consequences, which a person could feel if they know that God allows the consequences that we make for ourselves come upon us, and that is the outworking of his indignation against the harmful things that our sin might be doing in our lives and towards others. He had his mind full of all of that, the mistakes and failures, and he was dreading the consequences. What would God think? What would people think? He felt trapped. He just wanted to hide. That's what the law of sin and death does. He and we want to hide from God, just like Adam did. Now, that law of sin and death is like the law of gravity. It doesn't matter how hard you try to jump up in the air to get higher, to try and do good things, gravity pulls you down with a thud. Paul knew he couldn't kid himself, that he wasn't a failure in his own natural strength, even though he achieved much. As far as legalistic righteousness was concerned, he was a legalistic Pharisee. But he knew that that didn't count anymore. He knew that as a natural human being, we're all failures as far as being spiritually perfect. He knew he had sin within him, even when he wanted to do good. He knew he couldn't pat himself on the back for being spiritual, trying to do good works out of his own natural strength. 
And if he did pat himself on the back, he'd better watch out and not think more highly of himself than he ought, or he'd come down with a thud. What a paradox. He couldn't go back into legalism. It wasn't going to serve him anymore. The Holy Spirit had given him a wonderful revelation. It was another law of the Spirit which overcame that law of sin and death. In Romans 8, 2, he says, For the powerful law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed me from the law of sin and death. Paul saw that the experience of being set free was not the absence of sin in him, but the presence of God in him. So there was only one thing to do. Just hang on for dear life to the only perfect one and get lifted up into a higher way. You can't jump up yourself. And this is like having another natural law that could overcome the law of gravity. So instead of going up in the air and coming down with a thud, with this new law, the spirit of life, you go up in the air and you stay there. This is how the law of aerodynamics operates. The law of aerodynamics overcomes the law of gravity. When we fly in an aeroplane, we overcome the law of gravity. But in order to do that, the plane must use two things. First, there has to be an enormous thrust from the engine. And secondly, there has to be lift with the wings. The Holy Spirit gave Paul the wonderful revelation of another law of the Spirit which overcomes the law of sin and death just like the law of aerodynamics overcomes the law of gravity. And we shared that scripture. It's freed me from the law of sin and death. But we need a different kind of power in order to be able to stay up in the air, where does the thrust come from? We can't humanly muster the thrust. And we need wings to keep us in the air, like an eagle. An eagle was created to fly. And when we talk about a higher spiritual way for ourselves, we too were created to mount up with wings and fly like an eagle. And what about the thrust? Well, we have the thrust of the Holy Spirit. And when that, combining with the spiritual aerodynamics of the wings of an eagle, we can live above the law of sin and death. See, God doesn't motivate by fear or outside pressure or legalism, but by inside inspiration from the Holy Spirit. So how do we live this law of the spirit of life and escape the law of sin and death? The Bible says that they that wait upon the Lord will exchange their strength with his strength. They will rise up with wings of an eagle. It is when we wait upon the Lord that we exchange our strength. It is exchanged with his strength. We have our heart-to-heart conversation with him about what's going on inside of us. We bring him our confusion or distress or pain from the past or our anxiety for the future. And we sit with all of this in his presence. We just sit there. Don't run away from it. Don't go and hide from your feelings of shame or guilt as much as sometimes we'd like to run away from it and escape them if we could. So how does this make the problems lose their power over us? Well, 
They simply have to move over because we are not focusing upon them, but upon the greatest reality, which is that God desires a close relationship with us despite our weaknesses and failures. And he knows that our shame and guilt about these things makes us feel separated from him. So he wants to cover that with his love and his grace, the covering of the lifeblood of Jesus. And we simply have to receive that and believe that and come into that ocean of mercy that's there. He knows our heart and he wants us to come closer. It's the sin that separates and it's the guilt and the shame that causes us to be overcome by its power insofar as separating us. A life hemmed in by the closed horizon of ourselves and our problems is really too dismal to give our lives real meaning. We don't want to live like that. We want to be in that space, that broad place that David spoke about. Lord, you've placed me in a broad space. And to do that, we've got to take a hold of the present moment because we have to welcome the present moment that contains a present Jesus and give him that place at that time in our minds and hearts and we understand then what reality is all about. His desire of that close relationship with us more than actually our desire to be in relationship with him. Instead of talking to ourselves now in our lostness, we do the heart-to-heart talking with God and we find that we become found in him all of a sudden. You're there in him and you know it and you're safe and you're at peace and there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's just honest reality. Yeah, I'm not as good as I thought I was, Lord, but you've made up for it and now being closer you can start to live and move in me as I live and move and have my being in you. Jesus is always seeking and finding and restoring with deep compassion all that is lost and broken in our lives and in the lives of those around us in these days of trial and affliction. Amen.